0: First Samuel seventeen and then also Psalm fifty seven. If we read First Samuel seventeen, I think you're gonna find because it's a very familiar narrative. Uh, you you will uh, recognize the story behind it. First Samuel seventeen, I'm still on my Yeah, I Yeah. Now with... yes. we're well, First Samuel seventeen says this, how the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, in camp between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes, dominion. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in camp in the valley of Allah, and drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, somewhere around nine foot nine. A pretty big dude, in my opinion. Now, verse 5 of First Samuel 17. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Very, very heavy. And a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze swung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And the shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? and rise Why even try? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose an answer yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and show him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I be by the ranks of Israel this day? Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul, so, all of Israel heard the words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. David was the son of an epithet of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had a son. In the days of Saul the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next was Abinadab, and the third was Shemoth. David was the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's chief at Bethlehem. And we learn from chapter 16 that David resulted had been going back and forth to Saul to play for him on the heart so that the evil spirit whom God sent upon Saul would leave and he would be relieved from that. We also know earlier in in 1 Samuel, David shows up because he's the shepherd boy out in the middle of the sheep, the youngest son, who is the now anointed king of Israel. says to David, his son, take your brothers and Ephah of this pork grain, these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of the law fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning, left the sheep for the people, and took up provisions and went, and as, Je- as Jesse had commanded. He came to the encampment of the host and was going out to battle to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And as Israel and the Philistines drew up the battle, armies and sons, and David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the range. And went and greeted his brothers, and he talked with him,
1: and as, as
0: he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine, of that Elias, by name, came up out of the range of Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, verse 24, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And he will enrich the man who killed him with great riches. And he'll give him his daughter. And he'll make make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who killed the Philistine and take away the approach from Israel? For so who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the army of the living God? And people answered him in the same way, they shall be gone. Two men have killed them. Now, he really had his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and he really had his anger was kindled against him. And he said, "Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness?" Now, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. And David, David said, "What have I done now? For <laughs> it not for the word?" And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Verse 31, When the words that David spoke were heard, they they repeated them before Saul, and he sent to him, and David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine and fight with him. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war. Come to you. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after them, and I struck them, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. The servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumstanced God, Philistine, shall be like one of them, for he has the God, the army of the living God. And David said, The Lord, he delivered me from the paw of the lion. From the paw of the bear. We are deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of a bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David slapped his sword over his armor and tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with you. I'm not testing them. So David took them off. So he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield there in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him because he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I involved? Can you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by good God. The Philistine said to David, "Come to me, and I will give your flesh the bird, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field." Verse forty-five. And David said to the Philistine, "You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God." of the army of Israel whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or with the spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. In verse forty-eight, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly
1: for the battle
0: line and meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deep in his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Psalm 57. Turn there. This is written by that same boy at that same same slingshot. He's fleeing for his life from the one whom all the reward has promised. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you does my soul take refuge and in the shadow of your wings do I Hide until the storm of destruction passes by. I will cry out to the God Most High, to the God who will fulfill His purpose for me, and He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample me, save lost. He will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Verse 5 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory fill the earth. And he repeats it in verse 11 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory cover all the
1: earth. Pray.
0: in jealousy. That you fill up this morning and make your name great among us. This text blows me away. The life of David blows me away. To be quite honest, I find him a freak of nature. And yet, everything in me says, I want to be like him. So, Father, bring us to your text. Don't just bring up to the narrative, oh God, that we would leave in despair. And take us to the ephod to the heart of it to the gut of it let us see that David was so different And Lord would your name move into our hearts and would really it change us that I cannot do anything in preaching that your spirit does not do in the hearts of your people but so let your word be heard and let it go forth And let us trust in you. Amen. 1 Samuel 17 landed on this text quite simply because the young adults have been walking through the Bible together. Um, I love this book. I love this book principally because of the two protagonists in the book. I love Samuel, the prophet. And I love the second king of Israel, David. I love the life. I love David. David is introduced to us in the book. But before David is introduced, his character is introduced. Before we ever meet David, we learn about him in chapter 13. In chapter 13, it says of David, he is a man after God's own heart. It's an amazing statement. Think about what that's claiming. That's claiming that after you see the heart of David, or after you see the heart of God, you will see the heart of David. If you think about this metaphorically speaking, if you think about a procession going by, you're standing in one place, and the heart of God goes by, closely behind, you see the heart of David. This seems quite reasonable to me. So considering David's character would be a fruitful endeavor for us together this morning. Because we look at David, I want us to focus on what I'm going to call the lens of David.
1: A lens,
0: as many of you know, it's an optical device, usually made of glass. And as light passes through a lens, the lens bends it, we call that refraction, or focuses it so that it moves the light. That's what a lens does. Many of you use these lenses. Some have glasses. Some have contact lenses to correct your vision. It's an amazing thing that we've come to a place that we it blows my mind. You can put on your eyeball a lens. It is consistently taking all the light around it and changing it so that you can see correctly. Here's what really blows my mind. And you, can make them, you can make them so much that you can throw them away and you can change the color of your eyes. That's really freaky, but it can happen. When some of us wear optical lenses, all of us wear theological lenses. That is, all of us have a way that we interpret the world around us as we encounter it. And as we encounter it, We do what we see, we focus what we see in such a way that it tells us something about what we believe about God. Now make sure you understand my claim. I am not claiming that some people have a theological lens and some do not. That is not my claim. My claim is that every person has a theological lens. So you say, well, Tim, what about the atheist? I mean, he or she does not believe there's a God. How can they have a theological lens? I submit to you, they do have a theological lens. As they look at the world around them, they interpret the things that they encounter in such a way as to say, all these things can be answered as if there is no God, as if God is fully uninvolved. But they still have a theological lens. Still, believe something about God. As Bible believing Christians, it seems that we must be concerned that our lens is a Godly lens. A person possessing a Godly lens encounters the world around them in such a way that all their truths and values and beliefs are directed in such a way that they align with Scripture and they make the right claims about God. That's important. So we all have a godly lens. And I want to argue it is very important that our young adults have a godly lens. To give you three reasons why I think this is the case, this is by no means an exhaustive list.
1: Why of the think
0: it's especially important that young adults have a godly lens. One, because the world that young adults endure can counter is increasingly growing more secular, especially in the West. Number two, because the immediacy by which young adults can encounter this world around them. Let's explain. Fifty years ago, certainly seventy years ago, the public and the private Nature of our lives had very stiff divides. That is, private is what happened in my home; public is what happened outside of my home. They very rarely crossed. In or in the time of television, and now what was public could now be engaged in inside of my home, that which is private. But that was a one-way street. The public only said something to me, right? In the 21st century, enter now, enter the internet, enter a smartphone. Young adult can engage the world around them. They can engage the public in even the most private place. And they it is not just a one-way street. They're not just hearing from the public. They can make what it private now what? Public. They not have a godly lens. And because, especially here in the South, doctrine, given our long history of Christianity, doctrine has now been assumed instead of often being explicitly taught To argue for. I tell you, any of those three factors is good enough reason by itself. When you think of all of this together and you realize what's facing a young adult, I hope you will agree with me. We must pray for, hope for, work for, fight for a godly land. Where's the day did you see a godly land? You see, a way of looking at the world that is it regardless. In particular, if God fails to exist, David's entire way of looking at the world is totally flawed. Although, if it's true that God does exist, but He doesn't exist in the way that the Scriptures reveal Him, David's entire way of looking at the world is still totally flawed. And so this morning, I want us to look at David's friends I want us to look at a godly lens, and I want us to see it from 1 Samuel 17. We're almost going to hear this in surround sound. First Samuel 17 is going to stand like the front speaker for it. It's where most of the volume is going to come from, most of the details. And that's yes, Psalm 57, I hope, will work as the rear speaker, bringing in a fullness of sound, a fullness of the argument. So now let me start with where I hope to finish. Let me give you three characteristics of a godly lens three characteristics of a godly lens that I believe come right out of this passage and it's probably straight in the text first a characteristic of a godly lens is a deep trust in God a deep trust in God second a deep devotion to the glory of God so anyway, a deep love to the people of God. Now, so if you look at these three characteristics, and do not want you to think of these as like pieces of a car. Because if you go to car shop and they tell you all oh, Jesus, you could have a sunroof, you could have air conditioning. But you can choose which one of those you want. So if you could walk out without the sunroof and get the air conditioning. By the way, I would probably go with that story for you, I mean... I'll look at air and maybe you're more into the sun being down, but not me. That is if you had an a story. These are not like that. These are what we call a central attribute. I'll give you an example. A square has a central attribute. And you you learn these, you know these. It has four sides. It's the lateral. All the sides are the same length, right? It's made up of all right angles. If you take any one of those characteristics away, it stops being a square. So if, for example, you say, let's give it three sides, is it still a square? No, it's now what? Triangle. That's good. That's good. Um That's great. glad oh, we got that one... Um, it, it no longer has equilateral sides and it stops being a square becomes something perhaps like a rectangle. The same goes for the angles. The same is with these characteristics of a godly ring. You cannot take one of them away and still have a godly ring. It will be no longer a godly ring. It will be flawed. and okay, in First Samuel chapter 17, let's start together in verse 24. Verse 24 says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were much afraid. The men of Israel, and they're talking about the giant. So David's run up there, and, and we're getting to the story now in verse 25. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? The has come to by Israel, the king will enrich the man, He kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man, is the giant. What shall be done for this man who killed his Philistine and takes away your approach to Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine? with He should defy the armies of the living God. The people answer them in the same way. What are you looking at are looking at two lenses. First, look at the human lens. That's what everyone else there is looking for The men of Israel observe the situation and they come away with a very rational response. That is, they see a huge dude and they are crazy scared. That makes good sense. Anybody who's rational would think that way. So, they do have some hope and they're offering what their hope is. They're not utterly dismayed that they all just go show themselves. They have some hope. Their hope is in the king's reward. And there's a reason to hope there. It explains what it's going to be giving to the king. You're going to get his daughter for a wife, you're going to get some mad loot, and you're going to live tax free for the rest of your life.
1: That makes
0: sense. I can so tell mad loot didn't connect. Some of you are wondering what that is. It's a lot of money. So you're going to get a lot of money. People are thinking, is that like a. Angry bird or something like that. No. Luke is not an angry bird. Um, some of you might also be saying these days, tax-free pretty much equals Luke." Um, so that still feels that way, right? But it. we have a small reward. It's not like you're saying, I'm going to make sure we bake you a really nice pot or we're going to send you on a very uh, nice Galilean adventure. I mean, nothing like that. You can get my daughters as a wife take a pick. And then, they're going to give you a ton of money and then your entire family will be tax-free. It's if not just taxes; they no longer will have to do the work of the king. And others can go home. They're on the fighting army. Remember the beginning of the story. It's not a small detail. It tells us what about Jesse? He's been way up there in age. You can see why the brother's hope was surely there's some idiot out there who will take this on. Surely there's somebody crazy enough who will get a savage if given that reward. David said to them in verse 26, What shall be done for the man who killed the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel, who is this uncircumcised spiritual to apply the honor of the living God? Yes. You are looking at a godly and folks, this is a very strong statement.
1: How do I know that?
0: Because I tell the reaction, we're going to talk out that his brother Eliakim is <coughs> not happy at all with what he said. <coughs> I know that because of the way that everybody else responds around him. How do I know that? Because three, they end up taking David to the king. So it's not like it was just, you've uh, got to read this and think that David's saying, so what What exactly is in for this person? Not at it at all. It's not anywhere close. David's not asking what's in it for the person who does it. David is confused by the situation. So you have this young man. We know he's it's, well, We know he's less than 20. because so he, he couldn't be in the army yet. So he's somewhere, probably around the age of 18. He walks up. There's all these men bigger and stronger and older than he is. And they are very afraid. And David sees everything through his name. And it is completely different. It is made up not of To a physical category, a spiritual category. He's not a giant to David. They see a nine, everybody else saw a nine foot nine fruit. David David saw a pagan, causing an uncircumcised, spiritual sin. Now, David's not trying to make much of his lack of circumcision. He's making much of those who are circumcised. Namely, who? The people of God. You see, all across the Old Testament, the circumcision stands for the separation of the people of God. So David is saying, who is he to come against the people of God? Who is he to defy the army of the living God? What is this pagan doing threatening God's people? This folks, is a vision. This is a boy, a young man, a young adult who looks at the world and said, I will not accept the categories that have been put in front of me. I have those they changed. David remembers the story of Philistines. <laughs> That's hilarious. Philistines fight uh, the Israelites and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. This is when Eli, uh, they come back and tell Eli uh, he falls over again.
1: tells fell from
0: Gleitha and, and die He so so scared. And I got the Ark of the Covenant. How is it going to survive without us? <laughs> the <laughs> Ark survives just by. The Philistines, they think, we've done it, we've conquered them. <laughs> this is one of David's stories. They take the Ark and they say, where should we put it? We should put it in the temple with our God, Dagon. All right. They put it in the temple. They asked the high priest. What do you think? Should you go with Dagon? You go with Dagon. Put it next to Dagon. They put it there. They all go to sleep. They wake up the next morning. And the priest assistants just call him kind of make him up. I guess he goes to the priest and says something along the lines of, uh, we got a problem. What's our problem? You know Dagon? Yeah, Dagon. Yeah, he's down to the ark now. I'm not kidding. Go read it for yourself. Dagon is flat on two. face Before the ark. How is the ark going to survive? A A priest, you know, probably I tell different chick to say, keep Dagon up. Kiss <tipped> him.
1: <coughs> Everybody Bagon
0: says, what is all tomorrow? Nothing, nothing. Dagon, you know, just during Dagon. Okay. They go to sleep. Next night, they wake up. Priest walks in. Dagon's got no head and no arms. And they go out to people who say, their God broke our God. That's pretty much what happened. We put their God, and now He broke our God. What do they say? Get this thing on a cart, get a return merchandise authorization, and get it out of here. They've marked it out. They're coming up with anything they can. They're so scared to rob the covenant. And the people around them, this is like, oh, I love this. We should give them some gifts with that. They don't want to kill it. Now they're shipping it back for free, but they're shipping gifts with it. Well, and I love what they come up with. We'll give them five golden tombs. Everybody wants one of those. And we'll give them five golden rats. And then on the other boys, ship it back. David knows that. David says when he sees that foolish thing, we bewoke their God. I don't care how they this fool we will take him oh down. I love how David says that over and over, just to look at the soldiers and say, Has he died? First Samuel seventeen, twenty eight through thirty. Eliab, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger burned against David and he said, Why have you come down? To whom have you left those two I know the presumption and the evil of your heart for you come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? It's just a word. But I have enough time to spend on that but let me suffice it to say a godly man will be misunderstood. Don't know where to put it. It will be misunderstood. Gilead's brother was watching one of the most amazing things happen when he saw David react to this situation and looked at him and said, Yeah, you're not genuine. Verse 31 When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. So now you got David and Saul together. David said to Saul, let not man's heart fail because of him? You he said, do go and fight with the church. I love this. You know this boy David walking in the big tall hall the king of Israel, Israel. He said, calm down. He's just a church. I often think the other men saw a huge giant. And David, I'm convinced, saw nothing bigger than Papa's
1: mother. And
0: Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you but a year. And he has been a man of war from his years. But Saul did him. Offer him with a demon lance. And he's dead right with everything he brought about. Where it is He's been fighting since his years. He missed one important thing. He didn't say "yours." He said, "What?" He was a It There's a huge difference because David never sees himself to <laughs> just a youth. He sees a mighty God, and says, "I am whatever He wants me to be." David loves this. Uh, we're getting ready to get to the heart of the chapter right here. David said to father, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. This is hilarious on the face of it. This is hilarious. And i there, he's a lion or a bear. And a lamb from the flock, and he took the lamb on the flock. i go after him. i strike him, i deliver him out of his mouth. He up and did a big thing. I caught him by his and I struck him in he killed him. But at first, you think he's grounding everything with a resume. You think at first, he's putting down why Saul should have confidence in him. But it really doesn't make much sense. He's basically saying, No problem. I can be a soldier. I used to be a shepherd. Keep reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your servant, by the way, this is the key. If you're going to highlight or underline a circle, star anything in your Bible these verses are the keys the entire chapter your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them Wow. because he the of the living God why wow. because he defies the armies of the living God. I love
1: that.
0: He hear this. Hear this. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Pharisees. And there's a certain sense when you can look at this story and think, this was a boy who got caught up in heights. He got there, people started calling his name, got him excited, and he went out and did something really amazing just because, you know, he took some people standing up for him. And folks, the secular world will take this text, they have taken this text, and they hijack it and come up with some junk like that. And what they're saying is if you give somebody just a little self-esteem and a couple of people who believe in them, they can do some amazing things and they missed the entire point of the text because all they're doing is building on a human limb. David, David is not like that. This verse is so key to that. David says, day in and day out, when the lion and the bear came, I for to walk that is higher and stronger than me. And I can believe it. Now that blows my mind. Why? Because the gospel lens. That's not one time seeing something really amazing. Just living. That means <laughs> they and they are this shepherd boy walk the hills. we talking to God. we seeing God. We see a lion or a bear, he see God. What? And I say, <laughs> I want that. I want that. I don't want to see with these eyes anymore a very catfish me.
1: I want to look at life. Let's do it in
0: at life. So, skip some 5 April 10th. Okay, go ahead. Verse 45 it is on full display. David so said to Philistines, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of oh. hosts." <laughs> oh, I love it. See, we hear that. I can't repeat that to you. I hear that and I think, man, he's even talking spiritual when he's like really in battle." <laughs> he's not talking spiritual to David. That's all I want his heart. Just talking what he sees. Who see, having fear, God, yes. here oh, isn't I want that. I want to see like that. What do we see? What do we see here? We first we see a deep trust in God. Under there, as we read earlier, he Saul says, "Okay," and tells David yeah. to do what? To put on the armor, voice. David tries it lie. God got to get it to him for a try. his I not even move from this thing. I mean, I'm still God to pull it off, but why? Right? When the worse we do, is look at this and go, David traded a slingshot, or a sword for slingshot. Well, that's ridiculous. Because if David's basically saying the slingshot is better for me than the sword, why doesn't David do the slingshot from now on? Well, we know. Look in chapter 21. Look in Second Samuel. It talks about David fighting. He fights not with a slingshot, but with a sword. He didn't trade the slingshot for a sword. He traded believing in the human limb and believing in the dogly limb. That's what would he traded the way you look at things isn't gonna work for me. You I don't even see, see what you see, man. Love it. Especially if there is a deep devotion, to the glory of God, David proclaims it to the Goliath, and he plans on slaying him. I love this. And many others. Why? Not no. so he'll be safe, no. not so his family will be rich, no. not so he can get a, get a princess as his wife so that all the earth knows that God is God. He's yelling for the glory of God. And that the nations recognize their God as the true God. And lastly, there is a deep love for the people of God. He says, I'm going to slay them all to those who I love. You. He says, I want them to see that God doesn't say, My sword is here. I want it. What does He say? I want them to put off that human lens. I want them to get a godly lens. I'm tired of the human things that they're wearing. I want them to see a godly lens. There is nothing he could do that would be more loving to the people of God than what he did. He was not merely saving the teacher, he had given them a lesson about God. Well, one of the things I'm concerned about, highly concerned, is that this to be misunderstood. Let me tell you what the godly ring is not. The godly ring is not merely a moral thing. The godly lens is not explicitly about keeping moral rules. It's not simply about keeping your nose clean. Don't hear me wrong. I know that do I mean that there are no moral implications to the Christian life. I would never assert that. There certainly are. And it is not only about morality. Oh, how jealous I am that young people understand this. To be quite honest with you, I'm frankly exhausted with hearing young Christians treat the Christian faith as if it's no more than not having premarital sex, not partying, and not getting arrested. Certainly, those are implications there's so much more. And if you think that is what it is, then I'm afraid you misunderstand it. i try to give an example of this. I'm now a, a father, a very new father, seven months into fathering. And he a I'm take reaction at this point. I absolutely love it. I God, I, I never knew it would be this awesome. I love it. So if you walked up to me and said, "I hear you got a seven-month-old." Yes, <laughs> that means a lot of dirty diapers.
1: That <laughs> I means you have been
0: to a lot of movies lately. Probably you got <laughs> you're not getting a lot of sleep. Your schedule's probably not nearly as clean as it used to be. I took everything to calm myself down and to say. Yeah, you're right. Because I was understand it, you don't get it. Those are invitations. So let me hold my son, and they'll go away in a split second. Oh, seven months into this. You guys are into a lot longer. Like, oh, fool, you got no idea. That's fine. It's fair. when I hear young people tell me about only the moral implications I realize they've never held the hand of
1: Jesus
0: and I'm tired of the moral implications of God himself I'm wanting to hold the Savior's hand i know try example for you I love you They will help me say that two people you have the same vision problem one of them just one glasses. The other one has long with them. And the window place, and the person who now has the glasses starts describing to the one who does not have the glasses what it looks like. Oh man, over here, you can see in the back they've got this, this word up there. They've got a sign up there? Yeah, they've got a sign up there. You ought to read it. It says, do not enter. I've been going in there for five years. <laughs> and you can imagine, though, they begin to describe to them all the things around them, the most reasonable thing that the person without the glasses could head back into that room, somebody not know they have a vision problem and perfectly describe the room. so much of the people in the room think this person can see just fine. he can see everything we can see take to a room to have been Has been fully described and blocked, right? He now cannot see nearly as well. He's describing things that just aren't there. It's the same way when somebody tries to live out the moral implications of the faith only by looking at how other people live it out and hearing what they tell them to do. But when you start having to look in the places where nobody has ever seen but you? you're lost. Why, Why does that matter? Hear me. Because the place <coughs> that needs the most work, that's the most messed up that you will go is your sinful heart. And if you don't have a godly lens on, you're only borrowing somebody else's. You will never make any effort in towards holiness. Sure, you might get some of the dudes and the don'ts right, but you will not have a life-changing heart adjustment. You will not deeply trust God and you will not have a deep devotion to the glory of God and you will not deeply love the people of God. Now for a second, would you picture what that would look like if we were a church, people with a godly lens? Just stop for a second and imagine if we were a church with a godly lens, that is, we were deeply devoted to God's glory that as we look at the community around us and we see those who are spiritually dark and cold, we desire to see God's glory shine in there, not just for those people's sake, but for the name of Jesus. Because we were a church that loved the glory of God so much that we prayed for, took out money for, went to the unreached people, the places where the gospel was unheard is now are now raising up a banner of Christ. What if we were a people who deeply love the people of God, and We come with various backgrounds and various ages and various ethnicities, and have no reason in the world God to love each other, but love each other? We do. It's my prayer for this church, and let me tell you, it's my prayer for the young people of the church. I want our church to be known in the surrounding areas. Not for being the hip cruel church that young people go, but I want it to be said there are some young people there that are serious about God. And I love for people to say over and over, You're serious, they are doing some crazy things.
1: Jonathan Edwards,
0: at the age of 20, sat down and wrote 70 resolutions. At some point, you've got to read these. You can Google, and that's the beauty of the internet. History. Tell me if this is a godly godly man. Probably the best American thinker ever. Luke DeBake. who Probably one of the most godly Americans to left on this soil. At the age of 20, he says, he, he laid you down that every week he went through these prayerfully with the Lord. The rest of his life. Resolve. He takes every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him and give myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I can confide in my Redeemer. That's a man who deeply trusts God. Resolves never to do anything, whether in soul or body, for what seems to the glory of God so that I can avoid killing. a man, one young man, deeply devoted to the glory of God resolved never to say anything at all against anybody when perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor of love to my mankind it must be seasoned with humility and display the sense of my own fault and my own failings. to man who deeply the people of God so as we come to a close I would imagine if you're listening there's a sense of despair there's a sense of him who hear you with that other world I can't he's there it might have worked for Daisy but it's not working for me and I've known that you might be there because as I have prepared the sun, I've been there. quite often this week. I've been with the Lord. Right there. What do you do? That's the beauty of this story. <laughs> this story isn't about this story. So Throughout the call shadow. So much richer story. Who is David? David is the one through whom the Messiah is promised. When the genealogy accounts are given in the Gospel, it is pointed out that Jesus is born through the root of flesh. So when you see David, you see Jesus. And so follow. There's a giant standing over the people of God and threatening them with slavery and death. And there is nothing that any of them can do about it. over every one of you over me
1: doing this life called sin
0: I'm part of building the giant I'm responsible for the giant and I can't do anything to stop him. he threatens you and threatens me with slavery and death. He is a dog Not a slingshot not a five son. But three nails and a cross. And he says, I'll drink the Father's wrath. We slay the giant. The giant is a giant no more and he stands over the giant on the day of resurrection flexing his might boasting about his accomplishing saying oh death where is your sting this isn't about David and Goliath Oh, to leave it there is to leave it with no hope this is about Jesus Jesus doesn't just slay the giant, but he gives us a lamb. What he's doing, if you father follow, if he's crafting in your heart pray godly man. Now, can you think of that, now think again of the words of Psalm 57. Hear them offer the full to tell. Have mercy on me, O God. For in you do I take refuge for in the shadow of your wings does my soul take refuge until these storms pass by. I cry out to the God most high. You will send from heaven and you will save me. He will put to shame those who trample on his safe He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And the people of God say, Be exalted, O God of the heavens, and let your glory cover all the earth. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens. Let your glory cover the earth. Pray. God, I pray that your word will work. It's the only way that the lens is formed. It's formed by the, the power of your word. To get in to our life, connect it up, and put it back together is only you can. Lord, I pray today for the young folks who will attend this church. I pray God that you will change their vision. It looks so weird to a walking world. Give them courage like David had. Let him serve you and let him love you. we after all these things. To you, our Father, to the name of Jesus, our Savior.
1: Amen.